0: Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative Podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist, and today with me we've got Graham Jarvis. It's not the first time we've chatted, it Was about, what it, half a year ago that we were chatting about IP restrictions and pharmaceuticals and ba- mandates around IP and just how silly it was to think that we could magic up a pile of vaccines by getting rid of IP law. Fortunately, now it looks like vaccine production has ramped up but we're still in a bit of a hole in some other areas that uh, vaccines are awesome, they're rolling out, but um, people are still catching COVID and we need to have decent ways of treating them If they do catch it, there are lots of promising treatments that are showing up abroad. A little bit curious how many of them are showing up on our shores because whenever I promote vaccination, I get a lot of angry emails from people who don't like vaccines. And some of them will say, well, we just need to have a lot more therapeutics to be able to deal with it if we catch it. I think we need both. And I think some of the therapeutics that uh, my email correspondents suggest are a little bit nutty. But there are actually ones that work and they're a great complement to vaccination for those who do wind up catching it. What's available and how far along are we in getting any of it?
1: Well, you asked me the easy questions like last time too, Eric. Um, Yeah, look, if I can just start off by talking a little bit about the vaccines, and and I do support your view on it, I'm going to give you a number, 12.2 billion, and that's the number of doses of vaccines, COVID vaccines, that will be available by the end of this year. So for those that were worried about intellectual property rights getting in the way of production, they certainly haven't because... You know, World Bank and others have indicated 12.2 billion is enough to give the world vaccine equity. It's just a matter of all the other things that need to be done by the world, including trade barriers, including actually allowing people to get the distribution done right. That's what's going to be required by the world and its governments. So the vaccine industry has kind of done its job. And even into next year, they're looking at production levels being at 24 billion doses.
0: So when you're talking then about uh, distribution out to poorer countries, it, like I know that New Zealand has gone in with Covax and we're buying lots of doses more than we actually need to try and help get vaccines out to other places. Is that mostly coming through rich countries buying a lot more vaccines to help out poorer countries? Poor countries buying them on their own? How's that working? Well, I think the the
1: amount available from the rich countries, and that's what you know we are saying as an industry as well, is you've got stock. Please give it to the the countries that are needing it, the developing countries in particular. The last thing the world needs is for there to be unvaccinated people, because with that happening, COVID-19, as we've discovered with the Delta mutation, might start mutating into a different sort of strain that we're going to have to deal with as well and, and potentially look at having to ramp up another vaccine or a derivative thereof of the existing one. So, you know, really, it's important that we do get to vaccine equity. Uh, and I think it's on the governments of the world to sort of figure that out. But the industry's certainly done its bit to make sure there are enough vaccines to get to vaccine equity. It's what the governments do to actually assist and facilitate the sector, uh, getting their vaccines out to the right people in those developing nations in particular.
0: Absolutely agree. It's what we've been arguing for the past year. And then for the start of that uh, period, we we're getting yelled at from people saying, oh, no, you're stealing vaccines from other countries if you order them now and pay more. And like, no. Order, order lots for us and for everybody else and so that's what helps the manufacturers ramp up production because you're giving them more of the money that they need to be able to do that. And while the government's kind of come around to that view we're now trying to get vaccines from wherever we can and that's awesome too. So it- that, that, that was a matter of timing I think to be quite frank.
1: It's you know it's when you come in and start having the conversations with the companies around these advanced purchase agreements. So timing is always going to be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that allows them to actually schedule in this, the production. Mm-hmm. It's all about the manufacturing and the production and, and distribution.
0: Well, that starts getting pretty relevant when we start thinking about the therapeutics that uh, might be coming in. I understand that There's lots of orders for these that are coming in from other countries, places that do have a bit more uh, COVID to be dealing with and are trying to stockpile against further waves of Delta as they come through. I guess here in New Zealand, it's easy to lose sight of what's going on abroad. I I pay a fair bit of attention to my home country of Canada and just watching what's been going on in Alberta where they're hitting their fourth wave. And the 30% of people who are unvaccinated are just like swamping the hospitals. Uh, vaccinated people don't really turn up in hospital too much, the unvaccinated do, and it's causing a lot of problems. But all, all these places are then putting a fair, bit, fair few orders through on therapeutics. What sorts of things are looking promising, and are we getting anywhere in getting those here for when we need them?
1: I don't know if 30 minutes is going to be enough to really go through the list, but look, it's 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 another example of, I guess, innovation and collaboration to me, and, and I, I've sort of talked about that a lot. Um, in the, in the last podcast, uh, what we've seen is an incredible turnaround. Because normally, the process for any research and development done by this industry, the pharmaceutical industry, it takes you generally around twenty years to, to get there. Now, we had vaccines in under a year. Okay, now a lot of that was built on technology platforms that had been in existence for a wee while, so that that helped. But even that's quite impressive. Now, with these therapeutics, I, the road was going to be slightly longer. So particularly for the special therapeutics that have been developed just for COVID-19, uh, what we've got is a bit of a hodgepodge, I guess, around the whole therapeutics area. And that's why I said it might take me half an hour to go through them. There are existing medicines that are being repurposed. <clears throat> so some of these interleukin-6 medicines, like the tocilizumab that we've, we've heard a bit about this morning, actually, on Radio New Zealand and others sort of saying, oh, well, It'll be a really good one. That's standardly used for treating rheumatoid arthritis.
0: okay. I've heard about shortages on that one with people, people who have arthritis are having trouble getting that medicine now because it's in pretty high demand.
1: Yes, <clears throat> there's a global shortage of that particular medicine. It's, it's well pub- publicized so and that's because people have found out that you can use it for COVID-19, so you know we, we have got it registered and approved in New Zealand for use for, for people with arthritis, but it's not been registered and approved for use for COVID-19 just yet so that's something that I guess they'll be looking at doing but that's really for treating people uh, to in hospital settings so really what you're trying to do is there's what they call the, the the easiest way to look at this is a cytokine storm which is mm-hmm. one of the side effects if you will of getting serious COVID and so things like these interleukin-6 inhibitors like the tocilizumab, what they're used for is to try and calm down that storm so that people have a better chance of of recovering, and, and quite frankly not dying. So that's more of an inpatient, I would call it, or in-hospital setting. That's where those interleukins are used. So that's that's the important thing to understand about mm-hmm. those. And, and the fact is, yes, they are being used globally uh, for the COVID-19. Yes, there's a global shortage of tosilezumab and, in fact, the other interleukin-6 inhibitors as well. There's global shortages going on because, as you've said, COVID is sort of uh, causing some issues for a lot of people in a lot of countries globally. So... So that's, that's one example. There are some other ones which are coming through, which are the antibody therapies. Now, they're quite exciting. A few of them have actually been, a lot of them have been in development for a while. Now, the these antibody therapies, just to be clear, their mode of action is simply, if you can think of the virus, you've got the spike protein on it. The antibodies attach to that spike protein and sort of stop it, stop the virus getting into the cells so they stop it getting into the cells and then allow it to be mopped up by by your immune system under a normal sort of process and a couple of them have got two antibodies so a combination antibody in there and that's one of the ones that there's a bit of interest in New Zealand at the moment that's deliberately designed to have two antibodies so that it can actually cover, cover the options in terms of the spike protein in case the spike protein mutates which is what's happened in this part of what the variants are doing, the Delta variant, compared to the Alpha variant, for example. So these antibody therapies um, do have a lot of opportunity to be used. Their effectiveness is quite high. So I mean, it's avoiding people uh, up to about 80% reduction in people that might have a mild case of COVID uh, and would be prone to getting significant or serious or critically serious, in other words, heading towards death COVID um, symptoms, about 80% reduction and people actually heading in that direction, which is important because that means you can keep them out of the hospitals and, and keep them in a community sort of
0: setting, Yeah, that's vital. Se- that seems really important when you're thinking. I watch the stats out of Alberta, just not just because I'm Canadian, but because their health system puts up such a remarkable set of stats on who's caught covid who's in hospital who's in icu split by age to a fine detail and whether they had pre-existing conditions or not and whether or not they were vaccinated and once you get into the more elderly cohorts even though they've got really high vaccination rates you're still vaccines do protect a lot but you're still getting a fair number of elderly people who are winding up in hospital and getting some good therapeutics especially for that cohort to keep them out of hospital would really reduce the burden on a healthcare system when you're getting an outbreak
1: yeah and and, and I guess we can come to this at the end but this all depends on the country's strategy I guess you know so I mean it, at some stage of you know it's elimination I guess versus suppression versus opening up to the rest of the world and in different countries have got different settings so we've got to understand that but nevertheless I think you're right these these therapeutics these antibodies they're a real really useful tool to consider now most of the antibodies are, are just finalizing their phase 3 studies which is the final stage of clinical trials and a number of countries I think uh, last count I did on on one of these um antibody therapies about 20 countries had actually gone through what they would call an emergency use approval which is exactly what they did if you remember to our last conversation with yep. the, with the covid-19 vaccines We appear at this stage to be taking a slightly different route, but I'll I'll come back to that because there's another really interesting group of products that we need to be thinking about. So for those that are worried about more of a community setting, there are a number of novel antivirals specifically designed for COVID-19 that have been developed or are being developed, and they're going through the final stages again of clinical trial testing. Now, what they do is those oral oral antivirals are, are tablets, so the antibody therapies are inject injections or you know on a say on a drip basically so an intravenous or a subcutaneous injection the antivirals are a little bit more user friendly i guess eric because they'll be oral therapies for the most part and what they actually do is their mode of action is to affect the replication of the covid-19 virus directly and sort of uh, avoid it replicating and therefore dying off quite frankly uh, and also they, some of them also have a mode of action where they 're interfering with with the way that the, um, the the virus is assembling itself as well, which makes makes basically it 's increasing the rate of mutation if you will of the virus, but killing it off because these are lethal mutations before anyone gets worried um, so there are some examples of that as well now they are proving in clinical trials to be extremely good at clearing people 's nasal cavities in their respiratory systems of COVID-19. So if you can think about in a house setting, you know, you might be unfortunate, you may end up with someone who gets COVID-19. To avoid the rest of the household getting COVID-19, there might be an oral treatment that you can then take, and that avoids anyone ending up going into a hospital setting, which is where no one wants to end up.
0: Now you're saying that some of this might depend on what New Zealand's strategy is, but regardless of strat, like right now, we've got people in Auckland who are isolating, who are at home, who are close contacts, who might have it, they're waiting on test results. You'd think that some of these folks are, in, if they if they turn up positive, you would want that kind of treatment to be available for everybody else who's been in their household, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, as a prophylactic treatment, if that's what the country wants to look at, then that's that's an option to to certainly consider. So I think there are many strings to the bow that the, the industry is bringing here in terms of other tools that can be used in the battle against COVID-19 because I think the world realises that COVID-19 is going to be endemic. I mean, we'll get past this pandemic, hopefully, uh, very shortly, um, but it will be endemic. I'm, I'm not going to say it's like the flu because I think that, that upsets a lot of virologists and it upsets me. It's a pandemic strain. It's you know, Flu has not been pandemic recently. This is a pandemic virus. But it will end up as an endemic um, virus uh, or viral disease that we're going to have to deal with now. Whether that's going to be through a flu-like approach, which is seasonal vaccinations for those that are at highest risk, the elderly, those that are immunocompromised. Uh, or whether it's going to be using therapeutics, uh, drugs, which is often what's also used for some of these uh, standard endemic viruses. Uh we just don't know. But as long as you've got the options available, then they should be utilised as you need them.
0: I kind of seem we'd want to have both, right? The vaccine to make it far less likely that you catch it in the first place, the treatment so that if you do catch it, it's going to be of even less consequence, and especially in the older age cohorts where you're more likely to be having worse outcomes.
1: I think if it eases off the need to do uh, lockdowns, uh, quite significantly severe lockdowns and reduces the risk of people dying and reduces the overloading potentially of our hospitals. I think anything that we can do is going to be quite important. And we just don't know where the virus is going to go in terms of mutation either. so.
0: So for some of these treatments that are now starting to come through, how far are they away from something that'd be, well, if they're under emergency use authorization elsewhere, have they been administered in numbers sufficient now that if anything really bad or horrible was going to happen out of the use of them, it'd be obvious because they've been in use all over the place? Or is it that, well, like five people have had these things?
1: I think the clinical trial settings for most phase threes, you're talking about large numbers of people in a clinical trial in a phase three setting. And there's, there's plenty of people that have got COVID, or, a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, so that they've been using them as well. So there has, there has been uh, some use of these, but, you know, I think that's a critical thing. They've gone through, or they're going through the final stage of the clinical trial processes. A lot of them have been proven safe. So in the earlier studies that have been done, they're aware of what the side effects are. You know, phase one studies, that's mm-hmm. generally where you do that. So they are quite safe. And I always like to look at it from a, a cost benefit when I'm thinking about safety and side effects there's the risk of getting COVID-19 and be it long COVID or, or worse, and and we know what some of the outcomes of having COVID-19 are for people in terms of the, the horrendous impacts it has mm-hmm. on heart and lungs and, and other things and, and people that are suffering from long COVID as well So versus the potential side effects from the, the medicine itself, and I think generally I'd be in favour of taking the medicine. Now, I might say that because I work for the industry, but it, it's also I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> You, if you don't want to get COVID-19, mm-hmm. if there's anything that will help, yes, a vaccination, yes, doing the public health requirements, washing hands, wearing face masks, if it's getting to a bit of a stage where you need to as well, but also having that vaccine available in the therapeutics, we should be using as many tools as possible.
0: Now, in principle, ones that are already approved and are just being repurposed, in theory, I'd think that I should be able to get that pretty easily, right? Because doctors have always been able to prescribe something that's for off-label use. If it looks like it's promising for some new use, the doctor can just give it to you for that new use. It's already been proven safe uh, for whatever it's already authorized for. So those ones, it seems at least in principle, like it should be really easy, except that there are these global shortages. Then. There are the ones that are still in these approval processes. And I'm remembering back to last year when we were like, was it six weeks behind or two months behind the rest of the world in, a, in approving the vaccines? And that seemed to put us like half a year behind the rest of the world in actually getting vaccines delivered on the ground. Is anything like that going on now with these therapeutics that we might end up wanting to have
1: well, I don't know if it'd necessarily affect you. You could still order it and buy it and have the inventory sitting in, in your country. Um, but it's just then that you need your regulator to to approve it through whatever means it is, whether it's a, a full approval process or as we did for the vaccines here, it was a provisional approval. Uh and that that took until February, I think, uh, this year to get the to get the approval done for the Pfizer vaccine if I recall correctly. And then we started rolling it out and and the rest is sort of history. But I think the orders were made last October or the uh, October twenty twenty for,
0: for the, the pre-purchase vaccine. agreements the pre-purchase, for an insufficient quantity yep, yep. and yep. without getting okay. Well, yep. let's not go into that. Yep. But yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. But so, so I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, and often the pre-purchase agreements that are done by countries, as as they're doing now with some of these um, therapeutics, these antivirals, they're looking at saying, well, we'll, we, we'll sign up a pre-purchase agreement, but you've got to get the regulatory approval. And if you don't, then we you know the approval process is not forthcoming, then that means that the advanced purchase agreement is null and void, which is fair enough. So there, you know, there's ways that governments can protect themselves if you're thinking about mm-hmm. de-risking it. Uh, I guess the issue is at the moment what we're proposing to do is seems to be slightly different if I'm reading what Ashley Bloomfield was saying uh, correctly the other day. Uh, he's saying that the companies need to make a if it's a new medicine, uh, a standard approval process for a new entity, or what we call a high-risk medicine, or that's the language Medsafe use now. For a full approval process for a high-risk medicine, the average time it takes for that to happen at the moment in New Zealand, from the twenty twenty statistics, are about seven hundred and seventy days. So that's over two years. <laughs> um, and but that's but 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 wait, there's more. Then you've got to get that funded, and I think they were saying yesterday that Pharmac will be looking after that, but. Well, the, the sad news is, is, and that's why we've got the Pharmac Review really going on now, is that the time that it takes them to approve or for funding these new medicines, so to go through the reimbursement process, is about the same period of time. So it's about almost two years. Now, that's twice as slow as the rest of the developed world. So you're looking at possibly, worst case, four years to get a novel new therapy, COVID-19 therapy through. Now, I'm sure the government will act with more haste there are some ways that you can get it done quicker uh, but you need to be working with the industry uh, to make that very clear so there are ways that we can definitely get a a faster a pro, you know process done where it's provisional consenting whether it's a priority application through Medsafe and they generally take uh, around 80 days so three months on average slightly under that I think from last year's statistics uh, so that's only a three month turnaround time frame or you could look at a provisional sort of approach. So it's really, there is a way that it can be done faster, but I'm, I've just got to be honest with you and say the standard processes that we're using now, to me, and, and possibly I'm speaking on behalf of the industry, seem quite long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if that's an understatement of the year. I,
0: I'm not part of the industry, but I'm somebody who might want to have access to these things. Yeah,
1: so we're, we're hopeful that the you know, they'll, there'll be a reconsideration or they will work with the industry in a collaborative way to try and speed up these processes. Because if this was, you know, the normal time frame, I'd be sitting there going, I don't think you really want to be waiting four years, or maybe we do, but maybe let's walk the path a little bit faster in terms of the registration process. And MedSafe's been able to do that in the past on the vaccine. So, you know, there's, there's always hope and the reimbursement, if that's through the standard pharmac process or something different.
0: It seems weird to put this through the standard pharmac process too, though, because if you're talking about pandemic illness, where hospitals could easily be overrun in a substantial outbreak, because we see that happening overseas, and pharmaceuticals that could keep people out of the hospitals so that the hospitals don't become overrun, so that Vaccinated people and everybody else can maintain access to the health system for every other thing that they might get sick with. Pharmac, in our, like we've done, we've done some work on Pharmac. It looked pretty awesome in trying to get cost effective medicines funded and getting really good value for money. That comes with a bit of a cost in not always having access to the latest medicines, but for kind of baseline stuff, it seemed pretty good. I'm not sure that makes any kind of sense to try and put pandemic medicine through that kind of system.
1: Uh, well, we certainly didn't do that for the for the vaccines, did we? So we had a, a portfolio approach that was sort of led by Envy that looked at the bigger impacts on society and the economy. Now, Pharmac doesn't do that in its standard processes, so I think you and I would probably have a, a slightly different or an esoteric discussion about, yes, if I'm, if I'm worried about cost saving, that's great. A cost utility analysis doesn't factor in the societal benefits, whereas you need to think about that when you're looking at a pandemic. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that would get into conversations about how big the Pharmac budget overall should be, because I'm not sure that it would change the rank ordering of the different medicines that wind up being funded. It, it would mean that more medicines could be funded if you're considering a broader range of benefits. I'm guessing would be the first order impact. I'm not sure that there'd be big differences in the rank orderings. but it may
1: well be if you're the, taking yeah. societal benefits, right. I think. I mean, other countries do do that when they're making their funding decision on medicines, but we, we, we're diverging. And yeah, we're diverging, anyway.
0: but... <laughs> <laughs> this seems just categor- categorically different, right? Like that that stuff would be kind of around the edges that you might affect a rank ordering. This is stuff that stops the hospitals from blowing up. Well,
1: it really depends on, I mean, look, Pharmac's got some funding available for what they call named patient pharmaceutical access, right? So it's where you've got 20 or 30 patients that need something. And if that's what you want to do, that's that's great. But we need to be clear on what the pathways are actually for these things, Um if you're trying to get it for a community setting where you're getting some antivirals for the population, that's probably, you wouldn't use that that NPPA or yeah. Named Patient Pharmaceutical Access Scheme that they've got. Um, so look, there are different, it really depends on what New Zealand's strategy is. And I, I have no view of what that is at the moment. There's no, no guidance to us about what New Zealand's really thinking around these therapeutics in terms of how we're going to use these tools. So I think that's that's part of the issue as well. Yeah. What's our strategy here? Where, where do we see these therapeutics fitting in? Are they another string to our bow? Obviously we've we've suddenly discovered that the vaccines are going to be quite important and that's great and we're moving forward on those, but where do the therapeutics fit in both in the short, medium and long term? You know, because as I said I think it's going to be an endemic issue, uh, COVID.
0: Now, a lot of people have private health insurance and private health insurance will offer often cover for non-pharmac-funded medicines. Uh, well, okay, if you make a point of making sure that your private health insurance <laughs> covers that, and I have, then you're, you've you got access to more things than just things that are pharmac-funded. But what does that cash out to in the real world when you're a small country at the far end of the world, there are giant countries elsewhere that are buying tons of the stuff and stockpiling it. What are the odds that... An insurer here would be able to buy like a few hundred doses if they need it for their insured clients for who have non uh medicines covered. Um, well, there's always hope, Eric. <laughs>
1: that is, that, is that, the, that that's my tactful answer. Look, I, I think it's the commitment to collaborating with the sector and being very yeah. clear and sending the signal that this is this is what we're thinking about. This is how we're going to do it. So, I, I know there's and. I I'm diverging, but I will come back to it. Um, to, it really answers your question anyway. There are section 25 options. So Medicines Act has section 25, which means you don't have to get consent for a medicine to to actually get it. a doctor can write write in and say, look, to Medsafe, I, I want to get these medicines or a medicine in for this group of patients. So you could do that, but that's not for hundreds of patients. It may not even be 50 patients. It might only be five or 10 so to expect a company to hold stock of a drug which you may or may not get because we don't know whether you'll use a Section 25 is a bit of a stretch. It's like saying stock up, you know, take a take a punt, stock up your store and hope people are going to come to to buy your products. It, it doesn't work that way, particularly when other countries may well have actually put those orders already in. So it's, I think it's a bit of a stretch to sort of say that without having clarity on whether you want to have a stock of this product as a country your expectations are then going to the industry to have inventory on their books just in case you might use it so I think what they're looking for is certainty that's what anyone's looking for do you want this or not
0: Some of this is going to depend on the cost of the medicines and their shelf life, right? So if I'd understood things correctly, some of the monoclonal antibody treatments in the United States were like, what, a couple hundred bucks a a Mm. dose. Mm. And I have no clue on the shelf life of those. If it's a short shelf life thing, I could see the government being a little hesitant about Mm. buying a whole pile of it. Mm. If it's something that'll last for three years, it wouldn't seem crazy to have 10,000 units of it just sitting there in case we have an outbreak. And I also and I have no clue how the antivirals wind wind up on, on sort of cost. Is it more of a like fifty cents a dose thing or a five hundred dollar a dose thing? Uh, I,
1: I don't know what the costing is at the moment because they're still going through those processes. I know that some of the pre-purchase agreements are, are for large levels of stock. Um, you know, we're talking you know 1.5 to, to 3 million doses of tablets, and these are tablets. So those tablets are quite stable. Yeah, they'll, that, to your point, yes, they'll they'll last. The, the shelf life will be extin- extensive. For the antibody therapies, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it probably won't be as long as those those oral tablets or those oral treatments. So, yeah, you, you would be worried about having those. But, you know, the, that, that, again, depends on the state of play that you're in as a country, doesn't it? I mean, we're blessed, I guess, at the moment, although businesses may not agree with me, um, that, you know, we don't have a lot of COVID wandering around in, I don't community. think businesses
0: want to have a lot of COVID yeah, running yeah. around in the community so, either, but it'd be great if we had some of the treatments available for those who wind up catching it.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, it's just a matter of what treatments you want to have and whether you want some of the repurposed drugs uh, or the interleukin-6s or if, it, if you want to rely on a, a setting where you're only needing it in the hospital, in which case you can get, you know, cheapest chip steroids, which is... One of the the only treatment that's actually been approved in New Zealand for COVID nineteen by by Medsafe is is a steroid, but it's fifty years old, and that's really because again it's that cytokine storm. It's the steroids suppress your mm-hmm. immune system, um, so yes, you could do that, but that's more for serious cases when you're in the hospital. And I'm I'm really saying, well, we may want to cover both bases. Yes, help people that are in the hospital, maybe get some of the newer therapies for those, but also consider a community setting where we're trying to keep people out of hospitals, that sort of prophylaxis. And, and in that case, yes, you'd be you'd be looking at getting some therapies there. So you want to bob each way, I guess, is the way that I'd... I'd
0: say. So bottom line, what has to happen is that the government has to decide that it wants to do something in this area, signal to the manufacturers that they're going to be getting some orders through, tell Medsafe to put the lead out to... Uh, Get these through a proper rapid approval process, recognizing that these things are in fairly common use overseas. And if the world were going to explode on using them, we'd have evidence of that by now. And then we'd be able to have the orders put in. Is that basically it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, as I said, the companies and the industry is looking for certainty. Do, do you want these? Well, it's great saying put in an application to MedSafe. That's that's $100,000. Now, and then you've got the add-on, there's, there's always additional things you've got to do, so that's bare minimum. So if you don't then go ahead as a country and order the, the drug, I mean, the companies are not making lots of money in New Zealand, I mean, let's be clear about that, anyone can see that, um, it's, public, it's publicly available if you go to the company's office. Um, so so $100,000 and you're not getting any return on that investment, um, that, that's a problem. So it, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, although it is a lot of money, but if you're not knowing that the country's going to order, then that's a problem as well. So you can make a submission. What they're looking for is a certainty. You know, other countries are being a lot more certain, and I'd say front-footing it and saying, yeah, we're going to put in a almost an advanced purchase agreement. That's what they've done. You've got to get the regulatory approval, but we're putting in an APA right now, and that's exactly what we did on the vaccines. I'm not saying New Zealand, it's not for me to make the call. I'm not the government. But that's what I am saying as industry, is if you want these, you need to talk to the industry. And you need to talk to them for a couple of reasons. A, to provide them with certainty. And B, so they can actually look at the supply chain and the manufacturing to see whether it's possible for New Zealand to get them. Because you know, time is against everyone on this. There are a lot of countries who have done the pre-purchase agreements. There are a lot of countries that have put in the regulatory hard yards and have got the provisional consenting or the emergency use. And so it it, it comes down to, I hate to use the Q word again, but
0: it's your place in the queue. Yeah, and it's sounding like we're risking winding up at the back of another one. Thank you so much, Graham. That's a little disheartening. Hopefully, the government will move on this one a little faster than it has on some other areas.
1: Got to be optimistic, Eric.
0: Thank you. Hopefully, it'll be sorted out before our next chat. Me too. I hope it is. Thanks, everyone. Uh, You can subscribe to our newsletter if you want to hear more from the initiative. It's all available on our website. Keep track of what we're up to there. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time.